0: Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks for joining us for today's show. i got a couple of breaking news stories I want to share with you, and then we'll uh, introduce our uh, guest for uh, the program. Uh, the uh, Trump Foundation is going to shut down. You've probably been paying attention to the news that the uh, New York Attorney General's Office has been investigating. What they have contended was uh Improper and potentially illegal conduct by the foundation. And now the foundation has agreed to shut down after uh, allegations that the foundation was using money for Trump's personal and political benefit. The uh, suit against them alleged uh, persistently illegal conduct. And uh, under the agreement, the foundation, as it shuts down, will turn over all of its funds that has been that have been collected to charities of its choice, but the entire operation will be uh, overseen by the AG's office as they do that. The other piece of news I wanted to share with you is Michael Flynn, uh, the president's former national security advisor who left the administration rather abruptly, Uh, when uh, President Trump accused him of lying to uh, the vice president about his interactions with the Russians and uh, who then fell under the investigation being conducted uh, by the special counsel. He was supposed to be sentenced today. It was expected that he might not face any jail time at all. Uh, The sentence was for lying to the FBI. In fact, that sentencing was delayed when the judge said that he believed that Flynn may have uh, taken actions that undermined the United States, and so the sentence has been delayed, and Kevin Riley, who's sitting next to me, presumably uh, Flynn now has some time to try to convince a new judge, or this judge, that he doesn't deserve any jail time because of the way he's cooperated with the special counsel. Mueller says that he has
1: been cooperating. Right, this just gets stranger and stranger. I mean, they had a deal worked out, it looked like Flynn wasn't gonna have to go to jail, at all, and then uh, his... Attorney made a statement, and then Mueller countered that statement, then the judge sort of went off on him today. Darn,
0: these pesky judges. uh, Well, I mean, we'll see what happens. All right. That's Kevin Riley. of course. He's the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. It's Tuesday, the day that we always look forward to having Kevin join us. Thanks for being here. And and Kevin, we have a special guest who we're going to talk to today. Joining us from uh, NPR studios in Los Angeles is Bill Schneider. Many of you will recall that Bill was the senior political analyst for CNN for just about 20 years. He uh, is also a professor at the Sharr School of Policy and Government at George Mason University. He's been a visiting professor at UCLA, Brandeis, Boston College. Uh, he's uh, written for almost every major publication, the L.A. Times, the New Republic, the Atlantic, Washington Post. Uh, Bill Schneider, I don't think uh, your credentials, I think your credentials speak for themselves. Welcome to Political Rewind, Bill.
2: Thank you. Happy to be here.
0: Your book is Standoff, How America Became um, Ungovernable. So let's start. You've had such a wide breadth of experience. You've seen so many of the things that you talk about in this book first hand. So let's talk about first what the thesis of your book is and then go into some specifics. And I want to start right from the beginning. You point out that more than 50 years ago, the United States began a political journey in two completely opposite directions, to the right and to the left. Now, we're pretty clear on the polarization of the country uh, today, but much of what you try to accomplish in this book is telling us how we ended up so entirely uh, polarized. Is that a fair, very quick summary?
2: That is true. It started the current, well, you could call it a near civil war in American politics, started in the 60s, which uh, created a division of values between Well, my generation, which are the baby boomers who had uh, new liberal cultural values, I call that the new America, working women, gays, immigrants, minorities, who found their voice and began to... Gain political consciousness in the 60s, plus a backlash to those changes, which we saw happen with Barry Goldwater and then with Richard Nixon and later with Ronald Reagan. So you had both a frontlash and a backlash traceable back to the 1960s.
0: Uh, We we love data on this show, don't we, Kevin? We sure do. Here's here's some really interesting data from, from your book. You point out that the right and the left actually started at virtually the same place, 38%. You say that's the percent that Barry Goldwater won in the 1964 presidential race and the McGovern got in 72. Um, and uh, and the Democrats uh, started out at 38 percent as well. Right.
2: Yeah. With George McGovern in 1972. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of a base vote. Uh, it sounds a little high for Clinton, for Trump's base right now. I think his may be closer to 30 percent. But 38 percent is about as high are about as low as the right and the left have done in national elections.
0: Do, do you really tell me, do you think Trump is really as low as 30%? Most of the, like I think, real clear's average shows him in the upper 30s. Do you think they've got that wrong?
2: Well, what they do is they take people who say they approve the job Trump is doing as president, which is in the low 40s, about 43%. But what I do is I want to look for the true Trump believers. Uh, the, those are the people who say they strongly approve of J- Trump's job as president. That's closer to 30%. Okay.
1: So those those are his voters, right, Bill? So let me uh, let me Trump go b- right. Let me go back to um, what you said about these uh, two. The, the conservative and progressive Republican, Democrat, uh, you know, this 38 percent thing. And, and talk about some of the seminal events on both sides as, as both sides, as you as you say, found their voice in different ways. I mean, what things would you point to and say this moment was big for, you know, one side or the other?
2: Well, certainly for the left, the emergence of the new America uh, was occasioned by the Civil Rights Movement, which is what I grew up with. I grew up in Virginia, which at that time was really part of the South. Now that's a questionable assumption. But uh, the Civil Rights Movement, uh, which brought consciousness to America's African Americans and to others. Uh, I remember the Rosa Parks episode when millions of Southern whites turned to each other and said... I didn't know that African-Americans, they were called colored in those days, were so angry about the Jim Crow laws and segregation. I never knew that. Well, they didn't allow themselves to know that. But that was a seminal event. And of course, that was followed very quickly by the uh, protests over the Vietnam War, uh, the disgrace of Richard Nixon. You had a whole sequence of events uh, that really fired up the movement, the progressive movement on the left, which eventually uh, took over the Democratic Party with the nomination of George McGovern. On the right, you ha- I think the seminal event was uh, George Wallace in 1968 led... Millions of Southern white voters and not only Southern whites, a lot of voters in the North as well. I call them Archie Bunker voters. Uh, My students don't know who I'm talking about, but there were voters in the North as well as the South who were in a backlash to all those changes. And that was the beginning of the events that have shaped our polarization today.
1: And then, and then, you, in your book, you, you, you say that under President, the, the the election of Barack Obama was an
2: absolute key moment, and and, and explain what you mean by that. He's our first African-American president, but more than that, he's the most liberal president we've ever had. Some people would argue maybe FDR, LBJ, but I would argue that certainly on social issues, Barack Obama is the most liberal president we've ever had, and of course, he is African-American. He got elected mostly because of the financial crash at the end of the George Bush administration. Uh, But what we didn't see, I think, during the eight years of Obama's presidency was that there was a real backlash to him and to what he was doing, and that materialized with the Trump movement in 2016. The division of American politics started long before Donald Trump. But Donald Trump is unusual because he exploits that division. He ran on that division. He governs by dividing people. No other president, not even Abraham Lincoln, did that. His mission was to unify the country. But uh, Trump is a divider. Uh, he succeeds Four presidents in a row who got elected to heal the country's division, and they all failed. The first, President Bush, was a kinder, gentler president, he said. He lasted one term. Bill Clinton was a new Democrat, and the third way, he got impeached. The second, George Bush, said he was going to be a uniter, not a divider, and the country was more bitterly divided than ever after the war in Iraq. And Obama, when he first became known as a public figure, said, "There's no liberal America and no conservative America. There's only the United States of America."
0: So he was proved wrong. I apologize for interrupting you. So um, what we I want to talk. We're going to talk about uh, uh, President Obama, followed by President Trump, in, in, in a few minutes. I'd love to park that just for a second, except to point out that I think you say something really interesting about that. Uh, you talk about the kind of head spinning. Transition from a President Obama, who arguably, as you've said, is may have been one of the most liberal uh, uh, presidents of our time, uh, to a President Trump. From th- that, this was almost to you a head-spinning uh, change, and and you do explain in the book why you think that's the case. But can we get to that a little later? Okay. Okay. Good. I want to go back to civil rights if I can. Um, because, because you, you tell us about a, a series of incidents. You've already talked about the Civil Rights Movement. I was a child of the 60s. I was well aware of uh, what a tumultuous period of time it was. I suspect you were too, weren't
2: you, Bill? Yes, I was. And I lived in the South, and I saw it all happening. I saw society, as you did, transformed before our very eyes. It was a momentous change, and that's what got me interested in politics. How did that happen? Well, uh, obviously, I followed the civil rights movement. Uh, I was a bit involved in it. Many of the people I knew were involved in it. Uh, I got a scholarship from a newspaper to go to a private college. I went to Brandeis University in Mm -hmm. Massachusetts. And there, of course, everything was taken up, first with the civil rights movement and then with the anti-war movement. So I was right in the maelstrom of the 1960s. So— We we
0: look at the the 60s and see the the divide really grow wide suddenly. You have the anti-war liberal left and uh, the backlash on the right, which is both, I think, and and tell me if you think I'm wrong, which is both tied up with what we'd seen in the civil rights movement as it developed, but also in the anti-war movement. Those two... Uh, major uh, movements in American life, those two major events in American life, really began to show us the the divide. So that when you say it's not recent, it really isn't, is it?
2: No, it is not. And uh, I point out in the book that when the president of China visited President Obama some years ago, I was covering that uh, for CNN. And I pointed out that China also had a great revolution in the 1960s, the great proletarian cultural revolution. The difference is they got over it. I was in Beijing a couple of years ago, and they actually have theme restaurants about the cultural revolution with waiters dressed as red guards carrying around little red books. They treat it the way we treat our own civil war from the 1860s, as a historical memory. Uh, But the the difference is they got over it. We never got over the 60s. Bill Clinton said a few years ago that uh, if you thought the 60s did more good than harm, you're probably a Democrat. And if you thought they did more harm than good, you're a Republican. That's about as neat a summary as I can think of.
1: Well, one one of the other really interesting themes I think that you develop in the book is this idea of values versus interests, which I think you're hinting at right there. Yeah, um, talk about that a little bit, because um, I think a lot of values were developed in the 60s well, one I, way or the other, right,
0: I Cole? I, I want I to—let me, if you don't mind, let me go one more step on this notion of what happened in the mid-60s. And here's why I want to do it, Kevin, because you'll like this. In 1960, Bill, you know this. Uh, John F. Kennedy won the state of Georgia. Here's a Democrat who won Georgia in 64, but we—I mean in 60, but by 64— Uh, George Wallace came on the scene and paved the way for a Richard Nixon to, by 1968, develop a Southern strategy which turned the South around in terms of national politics. Fascinating development.
2: Yes. And let me give you an interesting statistic. It's my favorite election statistic in the entire world. In 1968, the year Nixon was elected, Mississippi was Nixon's worst state. He got, I think, 14% of the vote. That's because George Wallace did very well in Mississippi. He got over 60% of the vote. In 1972, Mississippi was Nixon's Best state. If you add together the 1968 Wallace vote in Mississippi and the 1968 Nixon vote in Mississippi, that equals the 1972 Nixon vote in Mississippi. What does it mean? It means that what the Republicans did with Richard Nixon's Southern strategy was absorb the Wallace vote, which was which was mostly, but not only, Southern. That's the big change. Well, let and,
1: me let me ask you guys. I mean, um, uh, more a child of the 70s here than the 60s, and I I've obviously read up on this stuff but the southern strategy why don't you step back for a moment one of you two bills and and, and explain (laughs) what you mean by that because it is in fact still in place
2: well uh, mister the other (laughs) bill will you You go ahead you're the expert yeah you're the expert (laughs) Uh, Well, the Southern strategy was just adopted by Nixon and Republicans to appeal to those unhappy Wallace voters and Southern white voters, and many of them outside the South as well. They were called urban ethnic voters. That's what I meant by the Archie Bunker vote, even though Archie Bunker was not ethnic, the fictional character. In any case, it was a way of absorbing those Southern white voters, mostly out of racial backlash, but Nixon did it without explicitly uh, running a backlash campaign pain uh, in favor of segregation or anything like that, he wasn't George Wallace. A lot of those people who voted for Nixon in 1972 would never think of voting for George Wallace, but they were still a backlash to the changes they saw in the country and particularly to the civil rights movement.
0: Well, and 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 Kevin Riley, one of the reasons that I I interrupted your flow of thought about values versus issues is this is exact versus interest. This is exactly where we saw that take place as the Nixon Southern strategy. As the George Wallace strategy started, I I think I'm right, uh, Bill Schneider, that it really was the beginning of of a of a cleft between uh, among Americans that had more to do with values than uh, interests. Is that fair to say? That's correct.
2: Those are the two forces that drive people's politics, and they're often in conflict. Right now, we have this strange situation, which has been building and building, that uh, the, the wealthier you are, the more likely you are to vote Republican. That's interest. You vote your economic interest. The better educated you are, the more likely you are to vote Democrat. And that difference grew enormously with Donald Trump. So my students always say, OK, what do you do if you're well-educated and wealthy? There are a lot of people who are. Well, the answer is you are cross-pressured, sociologists would say. You're pulled in different directions. If you vote your economic interests, you vote Republican. If you vote your cultural values, you vote Democratic. That's the pull going on in American politics in two different directions.
1: So explain how that plays out on the other end, uh, as, as you do in the book, on the other end of the economic spectrum if you're poor and uneducated. Interests well, versus uh, uh, values. Right. It,
2: it happens on both ends of the spectrum. Um, uh, Tom Frank wrote a book in 2004 to explain what's the matter with Kansas. And in the book he said Kansas is filled with white working class voters, voter white voters who don't who have a college degree. And he said, he was complaining because he's on the left, and he said why don't they vote their economic interests? It's outrageous. They used to be, Kansas used to be the hotbed of economic populism. Mary Lease, the leader of the populist movement, Movement said farmers should raise less corn and more hell. Well, they're not doing that anymore. Kansas is one of the most conservative, hardline conservative states in the country. Why? Because many of those voters have deeply conservative religious and social values. Many of them are religious evangelicals, and they put their values ahead of their interests. Just like a lot of voters at the other end of the scale, I'm here, I'm thinking of a lot of Jewish voters, a very small group, but Jewish voters are conflicted in the opposite direction. Many of them are business and professional people, uh, which would lead them to vote Republican. There's many are strong supporters of Israel, and any Israeli will tell you that Republicans are better for Israel than Democrats. And Jews voted 75 percent for Hillary Clinton. And in the election last month, they voted almost 80 percent Democratic. They're voting their values, not their interests.
0: Uh, that is a really interesting and—, and, and, and uh Odd contrast to me, Kevin, that—and, Bill, you really pointed out well. Now, here I will tell you that here in Georgia, particularly in Atlanta, which has a significant Jewish population, um, uh, although I suspect we don't really get much in the way of exit polling on religion, but I would suspect you're right that Jews probably voted a little bit more heavily for Clinton than Trump— Uh, In 2016, here in Atlanta, the Jewish leadership, many of the wealthiest Jewish leaders here are firmly in the Trump camp because of Israel. So, for instance, Bernie Marcus, a founder of Home Depot, is an enormous supporter of uh, uh, Donald Trump. And I could name others in the same ballpark because it strikes me that they are— uh, voting because of their uh, their business, own business interests, obviously about Israel as well. So they are voting interest uh, first, I think.
2: Yes, they are. Uh, and they, they are pulled in different directions. But I can tell you, not many Jewish voters are following them. Right. You go to the Upper West Side of Manhattan to the um, Mrs. Mazel country, so to speak. If you go up there, you're not going to find any Trump voters, and it's overwhelmingly Jewish. Well, the, this is the conflict that not just Jews, but many Americans have to deal with. Interests pulling them in one way, values pulling them the other way. Right. I, a student I, once asked me, go ahead. is this the most divided we've ever been as a country? And I had to say, you know, young man, we once had a civil war.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Three
2: quarters of a million Americans died in the civil war.
0: Um, I've got to get to a first break of the show um, and we'll do that when we come back. I want to talk to you since we're uh, talking to you from Atlanta, Bill, about where Jimmy Carter fits into uh, your picture of polarization and how voters have made their decisions over the last half century or so. I'm talking to uh, Bill Schneider. His new book is Standoff, How America Became Ungovernable. We'll be right back.
2: I'm Noelle King.
0: Over the past year, you listened as news broke and developed. You kept up with it all because being informed is important to you. And maybe as the stories changed, you did too. You heard new angles and voices. You understood. You grew. There will be more to learn in the new year, and we'll explore it all together. So please make a year-end gift now because when we grow, you do too. Donate online at gpb.org or call 800-222-4788. Some people like to splash and play. Can you imagine that?
2: On the next Fresh Air, Emily Blunt. She stars as Mary Poppins in the new film Mary Poppins Returns,
0: which has new songs and a new story. Blunt also co-starred in The Devil Wears Prada, A Quiet Place, and the film adaptation of Sondheim's Into the Woods. Join
1: us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 here on GPB and streaming live at gpbnews.org.
0: Welcome back to Political Rewind. Uh, Bill Schneider, longtime senior analyst, a political analyst for CNN and author of Standoff, How America Became Ungovernable, is with us from NPR in Los Angeles. Uh, and Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is here with me in our studio. Uh, Bill, our show is uh, routinely broadcast on Facebook Live. Uh, they're not seeing you. They're just seeing me and Kevin uh, but they're hearing you. And okay. Tom Faust, our senior producer, just uh, told me in my ear during that break that our Facebook Live viewers are loving this conversation. So you should feel good about that, Bill. <laughs> well,
2: thank you. And uh, well, they can buy for- the book even. Don't forget.
1: <laughs> right. You better not forget to keep mentioning his book. Then, I've right? mentioned it, I think, four <laughs> times now. Uh, uh,
0: uh, Bill, both Kevin and I have uh, Georgia figures we want to ask you to talk with us about. And of course, the first has to be Jimmy Carter. Uh, The surprise uh, president of the United States, the governor of Georgia, uh, Hamilton Jordan, comes to Jimmy Carter one day and says, uh, Mr. President, I have here a uh, 40-page document that I've laid out for how you can become the next president of the United States. And at first, Jimmy Carter says, that's ridiculous. And as he reads what Hamilton has written, he says, maybe this is something we ought to work on. How does he fit into your uh, a, a book, Bill?
2: Well, in the book, I talk about what I call the law of the missing imperative. For when a president is in office, uh, the president, by, uh, certainly at the end of the four years and most, even more at the end of eight years, people get tired of the president. Uh, they, they, they want something that the pre- incumbent president isn't offering. Uh, And that was certainly the case with Richard Nixon, who had to leave office, and then Gerald Ford, who pardoned him. What Jimmy Carter offered voters was something that they wanted that they weren't getting from the Republicans who were in office. That was morality. So what happened is, after Richard Nixon, we elected a Sunday school teacher, a (laughs) Sunday school teacher. That's what Jimmy Carter was. He promised, I will never lie to you. I saw that campaign when he went to Iowa, and he went around the state of Iowa simply saying, I will never lie to you. And after Richard Nixon, a lot of Democrats and other voters said, finally, a president who won't lie to us. He was the un-Nixon. Yeah,
0: yeah. I, you know, I didn't cover that. I didn't start covering presidential campaigns uh, until a decade later, till 84. So I never got to see Jimmy Carter in Iowa. Tell me, can you tell us, can you recall what hit, what was the energy like between Jimmy Carter and voters that he would run into there?
2: Is that for Kevin or me? That's for you. Oh, okay. Well, I was there... And uh, people were—they respected Carter, and they thought, you know, he's not a typical politician. He wasn't from Washington. We keep looking outside of Washington all the time, and I think that's what Democrats are going to try to do in 2020. Uh, And he didn't sound like, look like, talk like a politician. And that was a big relief to Iowa Democrats because of the wrenching experience of having gone through Watergate. He was elected for one word, morality. And he's kept that— He has kept that reputation for strong morality throughout his career, even after he was defeated in 1980, when we wanted something else— after Jimmy Carter, we wanted strong leadership, which Carter did not provide.
0: Well, that's what's interesting, Kevin, is that Bill uh, talks about uh, uh, voters appreciating the morals of Jimmy Carter. But it was exactly those moral values which started to really uh, grate on voters as they felt that he was incapable of seeing beyond this kind of moral and ethical framework he'd created around life. And they—they they, I think they grew tired of that. And as Bill says— They looked then for a strong leader, and who better than a than a movie uh, cowboy, right? Exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, the other,
1: the other thing that I think that Carter example points out, right, right, uh, Bill, in your book, is that this idea of crisis, the 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 need for some sort of imperative for American government to really, really work. We're going to get to that, but I got to ask you about one other political figure, and no one, really, there's no one in, in the in this state who, when you say his name, inspires stronger reaction than Newt. Gingrich. So, so give us New Gingrich framed by you know this the, the, your, the theories of your book and and how he fits into that.
2: Well, he, he became the uh, Republican leader in the House and the Republicans had been uh, the minority party in the House, it seemed like forever, really, since 1954. And he showed them a different direction. He was confrontational. He was angry. He refused to cooperate with the majority Democrats. And Republicans were really inspired by that. And once Bill Clinton became president and turned out to be pretty liberal himself on guns, on, remember, gays in the military, on spending, and he raised taxes, all those things got... Really irritating to Republicans, they went into a revolt. And Newt Gingrich really was perfectly cast as the leader of that revolt because he refused to accept what had become the consensus in American politics. And the peak of his career was in 1994, when the Republicans took control of the House of Representatives for the first time in 40 years in a reaction to Bill Clinton.
0: It was an astonishing moment in politics, uh, certainly across the country, but here in Georgia, since Newt was congressman here. He had unveiled the contract for America, which there's some are, there, there are people who debate whether this is the case or not, Kevin and Bill. Uh, but it was really an effort in many ways to nationalize the uh, the campaign, the race, to give Republicans running across the country talking points. Now, there, there are some people that argue, well, a lot of people ignored it out there, a lot of Republican candidates. But Bill, it really was uh, a major effort to say, here's what we as Republicans nationwide stand for. And they won, what, 80 seats in that mid-year election and launched Uh, Newt's career as Speaker of the House? I think it was like
2: 63 seats. Was it only 60-something? Okay. 60 some. I think. I'm not sure. I get my years mixed up. But they won a whole lot of seats. And they won a lot of seats in the South. Yes.
1: In a way, then, you could say that the contract for America was a statement of values. In other words, it was appealing to that idea that our value our values above all else, because there were certain things in it that turned out to be a little impractical, to say the least. Bill?
2: Well, yeah, it was a statement of values, and my, but really it was anti-Clinton. Clinton had been in it for only two years, and he had this huge setback in 1994. In the end, he had to argue The president of the United States is still still relevant, he argued, in 1995. Well, shortly after that, we had the Oklahoma City tragedy, and he showed exactly how relevant he was. He got easily reelected in 1996 without much trouble. Well, a lot of Republicans are pointing to that and saying, well, after a big setback in the 1994 midterm, Clinton got reelected. And so did Obama after the 2010 midterm. Uh, And uh, other presidents, uh, Ronald Reagan had a big setback in 1982. He easily got reelected. Every election year is really a new world. <laughs> All
0: right. I want to talk about another moment in American political life that you were a witness to and, uh, and that once again is an example of how society has been torn apart in terms of uh, how we deal with the events in front of us. Uh, you covered, I believe— The confirmation hearings for Clarence Thomas, I did too. It was a remarkable moment in history.
2: It was indeed. And, of course, we relived part of it with the uh, hearings for uh, Brett Kavanaugh's nomination. Well, uh, what happened, I call it a consciousness-changing moment. We journalists, you and I and others, those are what we live for. When some dramatic event happens, and overnight people's attitudes change, That's what happened with the Rosa Parks experience in the 1950s. It happened with Anita Hill in 1991 uh, with the Clarence Thomas confirmation hearings. I was covering that live, and I can tell you that we really didn't know what in the world was going on. And I don't think members of the Senate Judiciary Committee knew what was going on. But that was the first time people became conscious of sexual harassment and how angry and degraded and humiliated Americans, uh, rather, American women felt. Men allowed themselves to believe that women secretly liked to be whistled at by construction workers and catcalled and flirted with. Men regarded sexual harassment as innocent flirting. That's when we learned that women were very angry and humiliated and demanded an end to this. It was a real consciousness-raising moment.
0: Yes, it was a consciousness-raising moment for certain segments of, the Ameri- of American uh, society, uh, liberals uh, who, and women who, who said you have to pay attention to what women are dealing with. But as you point out, a backlash on the right that, again, further divided us as a people.
2: That's true. But it was also a consciousness-raising moment for men because men suddenly ah. realized that sexual harassment had changed from a joke to a crime— And that's exactly what we have today. Uh, We're still dealing with it, of course, in the wake of the Kavanaugh and the revelations and the Me Too movement. But it really started with Anita Hill's testimony, which came as a shock to a lot of Americans, including a lot of men.
0: Well, what's really uh, uh, pertinent at this moment, as we look at Joe Biden considering making another run for the White House, is the Me Too movement has uh, uh, accelerated the possible criticism that Biden could face because we recall— that he was rather hapless in the way he tried to deal with Anita Hill when she testified in those hearings. And and Biden, to some extent, is going to have to—he's never— uh, Anita Hill tells a very uh, sad but, but also funny story about that. You know, Biden has sort of, in a general way, apologized to the ether for the way he treated her in those hearings. But Anita Hill was asked— Uh, By an interviewer, whether he'd apologize to her personally. And her answer was, every time the doorbell rings, we say to ourselves, I wonder if that's Joe Biden come to apologize. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. So it's going to it's something that could resonate in uh, his uh, in his campaign should he decide to run.
2: That's entirely possible, though he has apologized and he served honorably as vice president sure. under Barack Obama. And that's what he's mostly identified with. I think he'll have some problems because of his age. Uh, he'll have to be very careful whom he picks as his running mate and almost certainly will have to be uh, either a female or a minority, probably a woman. Um, uh, he'll have to deal with this very, very carefully. The only thing that might uh, enable him to get through it is that 1991 was a long time ago and many Americans uh, don't have memories of that particular event. Yeah. Although the Kavanaugh experience has Brings repeated it. it. Yep. It has brought it back. So he has to be very careful about that issue.
0: By the way, Bill, I don't get an opportunity to really look at what our Facebook listeners are saying to us as they watch the show on Facebook. But I will tell you, I'm looking at enough things to say a lot of our people are saying, Joe Biden, please no. And it's not like they don't like Democrats. They just don't think he's the right Democrat. Kevin?
1: Well, well, you know, we got into the Anita Hill thing. So let's talk about Monica Lewinsky and Bill Clinton. And again, within the context of some of this stuff— that you mentioned, uh, and then you have quite an anecdote involving a late night phone call you got. We were very impressed with the name you dropped in the book, so why we're going to give you a chance, Bill. We're just setting this one out there for you to knock it out of the park.
2: Well, I didn't really intend to mention the name. I, uh, I, I, because I don't want to be a name dropper. But my editor said, no, no, it doesn't work without the name. I am a friend of Barbara Streisand, and she called me late at night and asked me if I thought this was right when the Monica Lewinsky story broke, like the first night, could Bill Clinton survive? And I answered—I gave her the Washington answer. The Washington answer was, it's unlikely he can survive. Why? Because in some sense, he was her employer. She was an intern in the White House. She He was twice her age— and uh, uh, she uh, it, it was it took place in the Oval Office, right in the heart of American government. So I said, after things like that, what business executive, what military leader, what sports figure could could survive a revelation like that? And Barbara said interestingly, she said, "I don't know. I think it's just about sex. If it's just about sex, people make allowances. She was right. I was wrong.
0: So uh, all right. Then move that forward to today. Uh, uh, the uh, Access Hollywood tape is about sex. Now, it, I think we could argue it's about more than sex. It's, it, well, I don't even know how to frame that, so I'm just going to let you take a shot at that. What's the difference between Barbara Streisand saying it's just about sex with Monica Lewinsky and being uh, a very uh, angry uh, in her public responses to Donald Trump and his behavior toward women?
2: Uh, The Monica Lewinsky episode was, here's the key word, apparently, consensual. Both the president, President Clinton and Monica Lewinsky agreed in some fashion to have some kind of relationship, which Clinton at first said was not really sex. But whatever it was, it was consensual. Uh, Donald Trump was abusive. That was something else. That was harassment. I don't think there was really an issue of sexual harassment in the Monica Olinsky episode. She actually said before she went to Washington, she was going to go to Washington to seduce the president. I think she told her roommate at a college here on the West Coast. Well, that was a very different experience than the harassment that Donald Trump was bragging about on the Access Hollywood tape.
0: Um, You know, as you talk about uh, Clinton and the personal issue with Monica Lewinsky and the way that it resonated, you uh, bring us right to Kennesaw, Georgia, just about 30-some miles north of where we're sitting in our studio today. Why did you decide that Kennesaw belonged in your book?
2: Because I wanted to contrast two places that symbolized the old America and the new America. And Kennesaw, which goes way back to and before the Civil War. Uh, It seemed to me that it voted very heavily Republican. I think it still does, although the population has been changing. And I spent a week in Kennesaw interviewing a lot of citizens, uh, talking to them. And what I discovered was Kennesaw, life revolves very much around churches. There was a church everywhere. People took religion very seriously. A lot of people uh, regarded the churches as the center of their life. And I spent uh, the next week in Bethesda, Maryland, uh, right outside Washington, D.C., which is one of the bluest places in America. What I discovered in in Bethesda was that the people who lived there, who were very, very liberal in their voting behavior, for them, some of them were religious, but they had a, a social justice view of religion, not fundamentalist. But their life revolved around schools, not so much churches. And so I pointed out that uh, in, in Bethesda, Uh, People, parents wanted their children. Well, I'll do it backwards. In Kennesaw, parents wanted their children to go to heaven. In Bethesda, parents wanted their children to go to Yale.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Some would argue there's very little difference between (laughs) the two. Let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way and come back. We're talking to uh, Bill Schneider about Standoff, How America Became Ungovernable, his new book.
2: For decades, the U.S. government had evidence that coal miners were being exposed to toxic dust.
1: We was all young and strong and stout, and every one of us was either crippled or dead.
2: But the government did not act to stop it.
1: We was all young men. We were just kids.
2: An investigation into what's behind an epidemic of black lung disease in Appalachia this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News.
1: 4 till 7 on GPB and gpbnews.org.
2: As you support the organizations that matter to you during this season of giving, please remember that listeners power everything GPB brings to you. Worldwide and statewide news, long-form interviews, smart entertainment, and educational services for teachers and students. There's still time to make your tax-deductible year-end gift. Please go to gpb.org now and click donate or call 800-222-4788. Thanks for your support and happy holidays.
0: We're back on Political Rewind. Uh, Bill Schneider, uh, partisanship is a theme that obviously uh, uh, animates a great deal of this book and the way in which we reached the partisan divide that has so uh, paralyzed us today. And I want to just go back one more time to the Clinton years because I think you make a really interesting point about impeachment. You tell us that virtually every poll back in 1998 uh, that asked the public how they felt about impeachment, Americans said, we don't want to see the president impeached, many of them because they thought he was doing a good job, regardless of uh, what had happened with Lewinsky. You say in the Gallup poll, only 36 percent favored impeachment. But that among Republicans in that same Gallup poll, 72 percent of Republicans wanted to do it. All right. Given all that and given that that reflects the kind of state we find ourselves in today in terms of the partisan divide, why did it make sense for Republicans to go ahead and impeach and put Bill Clinton on trial?
2: Uh, because they're under pressure from their own base supporters. It's like the Trump base today. They demand that all Republicans in Congress support Donald Trump. If a Republican dares to oppose Trump or criticize him, they're going to find themselves opposed in the Republican primary by an army of Trump voters. That was the same thing that happened to Republicans when they impeached Bill Clinton. If they didn't vote to impeach Bill Clinton, they would have been in big trouble in the Republican primaries and probably would have lost their seats. They were terrified about what was happening to the Republican base.
0: And yet, the outcome of that uh, essentially was what led to Newt Gingrich's downfall.
2: Uh, of course, yes, it did, uh, because, because he failed. Look, I remember covering the election night in 1998. I always say there there is a phantom candidate in every election called expected. You don't just have to win. You have to do better than expected. Mm-hmm. If you do worse than expected, you lose. Well, what happened in that election... Everyone expected the president's party, the Democrats, to lose seats because President Clinton was about to be impeached. And what happened is the Democrats gained five seats. That was amazing. And I announced at the end of the evening, if anyone was watching at two in the morning, that (laughs) the Democrats had just defied expectations by gaining seats. This was such a dramatic breakthrough. That Newt Gingrich felt he had no choice but to resign because he had failed in his leadership on the impeachment yeah,
0: issue. Yeah, yeah. You just, can't, you know, you, you. It, I want you. It, it's interesting because we are all sitting here. Whether you think, you may feel that Donald Trump is doing a great job. I, 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 that's fine. Uh, not you, Bill, but our, some of our listeners, <laughs> and yet. Given what an outlier he is in terms of, uh, of even his own party's politics, everybody's waiting to see if that moment is going to arrive in the Republican Party today, if, if we're going to begin to see Trump pay a price for behavior that is so outside of what uh, his own party has believed in for so long. But we don't see any—that th- doesn't seem to be happening, except in very, very isolated instances.
2: Right. Because Trump's approach to everything is one word, defiance. He's the most defiant figure we've ever had as president. Uh, If anybody criticizes him, he's defiant. If he's faced with defeat... He treats it as a great victory. He thinks Republicans won the election last month because he's absolutely defiant. And some Republicans may have lost, but he said, it's their own damn fault because they didn't support me. That's his standard posture towards everything. Damn. He simply cannot abide the idea that he could ever be called the word that he uses for his critics and people who get into it in his way. He calls them in his impeccable Outerborough accent. He calls them Losers. <laughs> Donald Trump is not a loser <laughs> And he wants to make sure everybody knows that You know, if he's defeated in 2020 I really wonder if he's going to leave the White House He'll probably claim that it was all fraud And immigrants voting And it wasn't a legitimate election
0: Yeah, uh, we're, 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 it, I think a lot of people wonder How a Donald Trump might handle uh, Losing a, a reelection campaign Kevin, one of the things that uh, Bill really go, dr- drills down and that's so interesting is how quickly this country turned around on an issue that we now accept as everyday life.
1: Right. I'm just going to read a sentence from, from uh, chapter 7 of the book that, and, and let Bill go on this. Quote, the most astonishing transformation of public opinion in our time has been on the issue of same-sex marriage.
2: What do you mean by that? What I mean is that in about three years, from the early 2000s to 2012, I think it was, you saw the transformation of people's consciousness about this issue. People had, in, in in 2004, wherever same-sex marriage was on the ballot, it was defeated by huge margins, and mainstream politicians like Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama were afraid to support same-sex marriage. By 2012, it was, it was no big deal. Uh, Obama finally, finally was forced by Joe Biden to embrace same sex marriage. It was no surprise that he did. What happened was the society changed. And the reason it changed, which I write about in the book, is very simple personal experience. The number of people who said in polls, that they knew someone who was openly gay really jumped from something like 42% to 75%. More gays were coming out of the closet, and people suddenly realized that people they knew, their friends, their family, their co-workers, a lot of them were gay, and they couldn't hate and deny rights to someone they personally had a connection with. I called it the Dick Cheney effect. His daughter is a lesbian. And when Dick Cheney was asked about same-sex marriage, He said, I don't think it should be banned in the country. I think it should be up to every state. That's a real breakthrough for a Republican.
0: Yeah, it it was an uh, uh, enormous—it was, Kevin, remarkable to see how quickly all of that turned, although, Kevin— right here in Georgia, the backlash, and Bill points out in his book, there are several states who had a backlash response. Uh, That's what inspired the beginnings of the efforts for a religious liberty bill to pass in Georgia, something that legislators to this day, and we expect to become an issue in the next session. We're going to wait to see how the new governor, Brian Kemp, responds to that effort. But
1: we do see the backlash right here in our state, right? Absolutely, and I mean, and again, going along the themes of of Bill's book, it's sort of that hearkening for the country we want, we used to have, you know, that and and, and how some voters look at it that way. Uh, what the other thing about the same-sex marriage thing too that you talk about in the book is this idea of defining certain things that the government should not be involved in versus things that the government should take on so talk about that a little bit and, and what issues you think sort of fit into that picture and what will be the next issue like same-sex marriage for Americans
2: Oh, my goodness. Uh, one hardly knows. Things come out of nowhere and suddenly become hot issues. Religious liberty has become a hot issue as a backlash to same-sex marriage. Uh, the, the, we, we, there's always a backlash. Every time there's a social change, there's going to be a backlash. Look, we've had waves of immigrants come to this country. In the 1850s, it was starving Irish immigrants who came, and what happened? There was a backlash. We had a whole political party which nominated presidential candidates called the Know Nothing Party. Mm-hmm. Who whose explicit purpose was that they wanted to stop Irish Catholics, it was their religion they resented, they wanted to stop Catholics from immigrating to the country. In the early 20th century, we had a huge wave of immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe, Poles, Hungarians, Italians, Jews, and what happened in the 1920s? We had a backlash. We had the second Ku Klux Klan emergence, not just in the South. Well, no surprise when we had a wave of immigration in recent years, since the 1990s under Ronald Reagan, uh, and uh, he was in the 1980s, Uh, we had a wave of new immigrants that came to this country. And true enough, there was a backlash to that kind of immigration. That always happens. But a backlash happens—when a backlash happens, it's like two steps forward, one step back. Uh, It means that people are stopping. There's some resistance to what's happening. But in the end, they give in. So
0: um, let's talk. We only have a couple of minutes left. But, but Bill— uh you've you've talked a lot. Uh, uh, you've write, written in the book. We haven't had quite as much time to talk about it here about the backlash to Barack Obama that elected Donald Trump president. Although we should always point out he lost the popular vote. He the, the people who he appealed to were in, in the right states to give him an Electoral College victory. Are are those disenchanted, angry, mostly white men and White women, non-college-educated white men and women, are they going to remain firm for Trump all the way through 2020?
2: Well, the Democrats are debating that right now. They're trying to figure out: Do they really want to get those voters back? They were the core of the New Deal back in the nineteen thirties and the nineteen forties, uh, and that's an interesting point because it may be very difficult for the Democrats to get them back because of their their social values are so antithetical to what Democrats are talking we about. We had Democrats we had a
0: primary Democratic election right here in this state that tested that. We had Stacey Abrams running on a liberal uh, platform, uh, hoping to embrace uh, African American and other minority voters, and a contender. Stacey Evans, who tried to rekindle the old yellow dog Democrat rural uh, suburban uh, uh, coalition. And she failed, unfortunately for her, miserably. But go ahead, Bill.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say the, uh, the, the what what happened is that uh, the white working class vote. Democrats aren't sure whether they'll be able to get it back. Some of them are hoping for a figure like Sherrod Brown, the senator mm-hmm. for who won Ohio, which Republicans otherwise own. The Sherrod Brown won in Ohio. He's an economic populist, and the idea is you can use economic populism, economic populism, which is the left face of populism, to appeal to those white working class mm-hmm. voters who are otherwise attracted to Trump's conservative social populism. Well, that is a possibility. You know what would help it along, though, if there's a recession. If there is a recession before 2020, I think Donald Trump is finished because those voters are just going to give up on him.
0: Kevin, we're almost out of time. You got one more uh, quick observation question?
1: Yeah, this is a big one, though, uh, and I hope you can can get to it uh, concisely. I'm just going to read another statement from the book that I think is very compelling and, and get you to explain what you mean. Quote, American government is set up to fail. That okay, sounds a I little can... pessimistic and I don't think you mean it that way at all based on yes, my reading of the book. But go ahead.
2: <laughs> yes I do. It was set up by the founding fathers who wanted a system that would that would be limited government to them strong government meant tyranny. It meant the king of England they had fought a revolution against that. So they created checks and balances, divisions of power, a federal system to make it very easy to stop things from happening. That's the way our system operates. Well, things do happen. American government does work. It works if there's a crisis. When there's a crisis, like the depression, like 9-11, like the financial crash, when there's a crisis, all the blockages fall away. And public opinion is what forces politicians to work, to get along, to do things and to pass legislation. But it requires a crisis. American government works very well in a crisis.
0: You know, Bill Schneider... Your training in TV news really paid off. You hit that answer and are getting us out of this show right on time. Okay. Uh, we've been talking to Bill Schneider, longtime political analyst for CNN, author of a new book, Standoff, How America Became Ungovernable. Bill, it's been a real pleasure having you with us today. Thanks for taking us back in our current And, I mean, recent past in history and talking to us about today, it's been a joy to have you here, Kevin. Yeah,
1: Bill, thanks so much. It was a pleasure to talk to you, and I really
0: enjoyed the book.
2: And my pleasure to be with you. Thank you.
0: Take care. That's it for us for uh, Political Rewind today. We're back again tomorrow with a live show again at 2 o'clock. We're also going to be recording a top 10 stories in Georgia politics tomorrow, which we'll be playing during Christmas week. You'll hear a lot more about that on tomorrow and Friday's show. Thanks for being with us today for Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. See you tomorrow at 2.